I, it's, it's hard to come up here right after we sing because it's like the song is stuck in my head, like he won't fail. You know, it's good when you get a song like that stuck in your head, right? It's, that's a good one, <laughs> get stuck, all of that. And so I just, as I was thinking about it, it just that God would give us something to um, praise him for. God has brought just an, what an incredible group of worship leaders and and technicians, and I'm just so grateful for all that. So I'm also grateful for um, Kirsten Loxamon and Maurice because they got engaged this last week. I feel like there's no, there's no privacy. It's no, you know, it's all open. So anyway, it's so awesome to see and uh, just so excited for you guys and, um, and uh, what is in store. Uh, also, this last Wednesday night, we had a great time with kids and parents and reptiles. And right out here, we gathered, we had about 35 kids, we had about 45 parents, um, probably one of our biggest gatherings of families over the course of the summer. Other than our Fall Fest, this might have been the largest uh, gathering. And so Marsha and her team put on this great time where parents from Children's House and other families could come and, um, and see these, uh, these uh, I said dinosaurs, but they're not dinosaurs, you know. But that's how you get the kids, you know, the kids. It's like, were we going to show Jurassic Park 2 just to scare these kids? I'm, no. But anyway, we, we, they had this huge tortoise, and they let it roam around, and it did a little trimming for us. Uh, all the, it was a lot of fun and a great time, and so, so encouraging to see that. All right. We are, we're in the middle of our summer series, which is taking Ephesians 5.19 seriously, which is to speak to one another. Sorry about that. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit breathy this morning. There we go. Um, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so we've been looking at psalms. Last week we took a break to look at a hymn, a Christ hymn, something that focuses on Jesus. And so we looked at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Now today we're back in the psalms, and I thought I would pick a psalm that is kind of obscure, that not a lot of people read, and um, a psalm that maybe goes under the radar in the Christian world. And so if you have your Bible, let's open up to Psalm 23. Thank you. For, the, for those of you who've been in church for a while, you understand that Psalm 23 is one of the most beloved of all the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. And if you ask somebody, like, name a Psalm, there's a really good chance that the Psalm they're going to name is Psalm 23. Three. There's a number of passages, like when I became a pastor and was preaching weekly, I, I was an associate pastor and I would preach every so often, and like you'd always get the passages as the associate pastor, you'd always get the passages that don't make it onto the Hobby Lobby decoration. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't, it's like, you know, it's not like be still and know that I'm, that I'm God, it's like my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's, that's what you would get as the associate pastor. So when I became a, a lead pastor and that I would be in the pulpit every week, there are certain passages that you, you wait for and you, you just are like, I can't wait to preach this one. Now, this was not one of them because I'll tell you what, it is, it is the most beloved of all the Psalms and my only thought when I come to this passage is don't mess it up. Like there's certain passages you come to and you're like, we could read this and walk out of here and it would sustain us literally for thousands of years. This Psalm has sustained the church. I'm just a little bit hot. I feel like I'm just breathing right into this thing. Sorry, I can carry it with my voice, but anyway, this psalm has literally sustained Jewish and Christian spirituality for millennia, for thousands of years. 
And so when we come to this passage, we, we kind of come to where we're walking on holy ground, and we're going to actually spend, whether it's, it might be two or three weeks that we're going to spend in Psalm 23, but um, Walter Brueggemann, in his little book on the Psalms, he says, it's almost pretentious to comment on this psalm. The grip it has had on biblical spirituality is deep and genuine. It is such a simple statement that it can bear its own witness without comment. And that is certainly true. And you've probably experienced that with Psalm 23, that Psalm 23, it can stand on its own without comment. You're like, so why, why are you going to speak this morning, Pastor Craig? Well, I've got a few words to say. Um, and I, I suppose the thing is that it is a beautiful, it is genuine, it is beloved, it is also familiar. And there's something about whether familiarity can sustain us, but familiarity can also blind us to the beauty that is in front of us. That sometimes things that are beautiful and familiar can eventually become trite, or at least on our lips it can become trite. It can become something that is so rote, so familiar, that it almost loses its impact, that it's something that when we first read it, it has this great impact, and it might stale over time, but every once in a while it comes back and we feel the full force of it. It comes fresh to us again. And we may need reminders or new angles to help us keep God's Word, that, that God's Word would stay fresh. We know that God's Word is living and active. We want to experience it as living and active. And sometimes, you know, stuffy people like me can kind of make it a little, maybe a little boring. I hope not. It's the one thing I, that I hope that no one ever says about me is that man, when he taught, the Bible was just kind of boring. Like my job, the Bible is alive and active. And my job is to give that sense. Whenever we open up the Word, we come expectant that it's going to leap off the page, that it's going to leap into our hearts, that God is going to do something mysterious, that His Spirit and this Word are going to come together and they're going to transform our lives. And so when we come to this passage, we don't want simply familiar or rote. We want to come just expectant that God would show us if there are new things, new things. But if it's simply the idea that I need a reminder of the deeply held truths that I already know, that I need them to come fresh into my heart, then that's what we want today, especially with Psalm 23. Let's pray together. Just as we come to this passage, let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is such a beautiful chapter in your word. We pray that we would do it justice by, by sitting, by standing at attention, by sitting at attention to it in our souls, and that you would be gracious to visit us in a particular way that you would bring this afresh upon us. Open our hearts, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I, wanna, I just want to reflect a little bit on this beloved song, Psalm. Um, what is there in the Hebrew? How has it been used in spirituality? How does the metaphor of sheep and shepherd work? We'll talk a little sheep talk today. And um, probably with all these reminders, um, maybe nothing new, maybe a new perspective, maybe not, but uh, these reminders for us, all right? So let's just start here. We're not going to bury the lead. We're just going to go to the main point. What is the main point of Psalm 23? 
What is the main, I'm going to ask you guys, let's hear this, this is audience participation time. Congregation, what is the main point of Psalm 23? Main point, shout it out, come on. God loves you. Comfort. Say that again. Comfort, I hear that. Is there an echo? There's an echo, Maurice and E.B., they're on the same page. See, this is the beauty of the body of Christ, right? What else? God watches over you. See, he'll never let us go. Okay, if you want to be technical about this, there are 57 words in Hebrew, actually 58 words in Hebrew, 58 words in this psalm. In the English, in our English translation, the ESV, there's 113 words, but in Hebrew, there's only 57 of those words, okay? Up to 28, you get 28 words, and then you have two words, and then you get 28 more words. That actually comes out to more than, uh, if you do the math, keep that in mind. Anyway, there's two words right in the center, right in the middle of the psalm, the dead middle of the psalm. There are two words, and it is the main point of what Psalm 23 is all about. In Hebrew, the words are atah imadi. In English, it's four words. You are with me. You are with me. That, that is the message of Psalm 23. You want to know why that's important, why that's significant? Have you ever read Psalm 22? Just flip back in your Bible. Psalm 22. What's the first line in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the editors put this together, they put this together for a reason that Psalm 22, that Psalm 23 would follow Psalm 22. Psalm 22, it's the cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was putting that to, to speech. And Psalm 22, in our life, in our experience, that is the experience before we are able to say, you are with me. Our first prayer is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oftentimes it goes in that order. We don't always have the confidence of Psalm 23. We sometimes come into our life with the doubt and the questions of Psalm 22. The main point of Psalm 23 is those middle two words in the exact center of the psalm. You are with me. And for three weeks, we're going to explore this idea of how does you are with me. So I didn't want to bury the lead. Like this, it's not, I don't want to have this drastic reveal at the end of the message. Like, what's the main point? This is the one thing that we want to have on our minds as we hear everything that this psalm is saying. Everything in this psalm is meant to hammer home the point, you are with me. Now, here's the deal. The main point of the psalm is not God is with me, See, God is with me, that's a, that's a statement, that's, that's a theological truth, and that's awesome. Like, you, God is with me is a great truth. But when you say, you are with me, that's not a statement, that's a prayer. When you say, you are with me, that's not just theological truth, that is, that's spiritual experience, and that's the point of Psalm 23. It's not just about theological truth, what is God like? It's about the idea that God is not only is so present that you don't even have to talk about in the third person, God is this. You say, you are with me. And that's the point of Psalm 23. We're going to be 
reflecting on that as we work through this entire psalm. Psalm 23 is what is called a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm of confidence. So we have a number of psalms, like, for example, like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's what is called a lament, right? A lament. We, we, we looked, remember la- a couple summers ago, we went through the psalms and we talked about the psalms all bear witness. Each psalm bears witness to one season or another in the life of faith, which is there are seasons of orientation where all is right in the world and you feel like the wind is at your back and God, God is good and I'm, I'm experiencing the goodness of God in this world. I'm oriented. But God will oftentimes take us into a season of disorientation, whether it's our own sin that takes us in there or God takes us in there or circumstances of a fallen world. We go into this situation where we don't experience the goodness of God in our world. Can I get an amen? Like that, that happens. That, happen, that happens a lot when we walk out these doors. We don't go into a world that is trying to prop up our faith. We go into a world that honestly is trying to disorient us. And so sometimes we see that around us. We see bad, we're surrounded by bad news. Sometimes that bad news comes home, right? We might see other people in disorientation, but sometimes that bad news comes home and we are, find ourselves in profound disorientation. And we have real, real questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O oh Lord, right? That these, these are real prayers in the Psalms. These, it's not like you're, you're backsliding if you pray these prayers. These are prayers of faith. They're right here. God saw fit to put them in his Bible. And they are prayers for us. And we learn that we, go, we can go from orientation to disorientation, but God's last word is not disorientation. We go, God promises resurrection. God promises new orientation. God is not, the end is not how long, O oh Lord. The end is you have saved me. You've turned my mourning into dancing. So as we look at these, you have laments. And then the new orientation, you have like a lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you have these psalms of thanksgiving, like you've turned my mourning into dancing, Psalm 30. But you also have, so if you, if you look at the Christian life in this, in this series of cycles that you're oriented, the storm comes, whether you want to call it the storm or you're called into the desert, whatever it is, or the winter, however you want to think about that, you're called in this season, God brings you out into spring, but eventually spring turns into like the freshness of new orientation will, will, will give way to a, a profound season of orientation. But what we find is that when, you're in, we're, when we're between a thanksgiving, sometimes on the horizon, we can see trouble coming. Is anybody with me on this? Like you're in your you're point in your life, I don't know where you are right now, maybe you're in a season of orientation, but we are surrounded by bad news, and on the horizon we might see something coming. And a psalm of confidence, like Psalm 23, is meant to exist between the, the thanksgiving of the previous coming out of disorientation, with the next season of disorientation maybe on the horizon, you can see it off in a distance, Psalm 23 serves as a psalm, a psalm of confidence that goes between the psalm of thanksgiving and the psalm of lament. It's a psalm of confidence. It's meant to instill confidence, and the way it instills confidence is by hammering home the point, you are with me. I see on the horizon, it's coming. It may come. Whatever may come, you are with me. And so, this is one of the reasons why I think Psalm 23 has been 
such a significant psalm in the history of Christian and Jewish spirituality because so much of our life of faith, our lives of faith, are lived in this season. We don't always live in the season of lament. We don't always live in the season of like, let's dance, right? We live in this season between God delivering us and the next trouble coming. This is a lot of where our life of faith lives and exists, isn't it? And so Psalm 23, probably because of that, has become this psalm that can be recited, that not only in a time of trial, but also just in a time of steadying, Psalm 23 can be there. And so that's one of the reasons why Psalm 23 has probably been so significant. But you might just say, look, you don't have to tell me why Psalm 23 has been significant. It sustained me, right? And so you could say that yourself, and you know why this would be. And so what I want to do is this psalm that is somewhere between thanksgiving and lament. Um, I want to just reflect a little bit on it. We're only going to look today, we're going to look at what, the first three, three verses and the first line of the fourth verse and, um, and, and start in on this, and I want to explore this. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Psalm 23, and we'll start in verse 1, and I just want to start to take a, take a look at this and reflect. You've probably spent some time on this. How many people have memorized Psalm 23? It's a great psalm to commit to memory. Um, it takes a little bit of time. There's a, there's, there's a few there. Like I said, it's only 100, um, what did we say, 100 and, uh, 113 words in English, but it's a great psalm to memorize. So Psalm 23, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, in, in Hebrew, one of the things that I, I was doing as I was looking at this, um, in 2000 B.C., the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. Alexander the Great conquers the known world. Greek becomes the common language. And so even the Jewish rabbis translate the, the, the Hebrew into Greek. And when they do that, they, it brings out something. One of the reasons why, it brings out something that we don't always see in our English translations. Because even in Hebrew, also in Greek, what it says, this first line, is not the Lord is my shepherd. What it actually reads is the Lord shepherds me. The Lord shepherds me. The word shepherd is not in there. The verb shepherd is in there. The Lord shepherds me. It's a, it's a subtle difference. It's a subtle nuance. Here's the reason why you're, like the ESV doesn't make a change, because the King James Version is so influential. A lot of, a lot of English translations don't like to move off of the really, the, the passages. Like nobody, like the NIV is like, we're not going to sell any of these translations if we change Psalm 23. So the Lord is my shepherd, it is, right? But same with the ESV. But what it says is the Lord shepherds me. The Lord shepherds me. And there can be times, I think this week I was thinking about this, there can be times when I feel like, okay, Jesus has saved me, but I'm kind of dropped in the middle of this world with my wits and whatever I've got about me and like my good decision-making skills and like I, I just have my, re whatever resources are around me, and I just have to make do with the best of my resources that I have. I just, I've got to make good decisions. I've got to be financially smart. I've got to like, I've got to have good skills interpersonally, and I've just got to kind of, I, I got to be productive. Like this is me. This is my own head. This might not be you. You're like, I trust the Lord all the time. For me, sometimes I'm like, I just got to make it do on my own. That might, maybe that's not you, that's me. I can have that sense, and sometimes like a, a ver, uh, just the first line of this kind of shocks me back in, is like, look, Craig, it's not just about your own skills. It's not just about your own abilities. 
It's not just about whether you ha- how much money you have or how many resources you have available or your interpersonal abilities or your charm, right? Because you have no laughter on that. That's good. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate that. But the idea is, look, it's not just about what you have in your skills and abilities. God is shepherding you. God is moving you about. He's giving you cues. He's taking you places. He's moving you into relationships. He's moving you into ministry. He is shepherding you. This is not just about your own good decision-making. Lest you need to be reminded about how bad decision-making we can be. You know, how bad decision-makers we can be. It's not just about our decision-making. The Lord shepherds me. He doesn't just watch me. He guides me. Let me say that again. God doesn't just watch you. I think sometimes we can think that God, our image of God is that like he's up, he's up there and he's just like, yeah, all right. That's your choice. Like, it... <laughs> God is not just watching. God is guiding. God is shepherding. He gives us cues. He leads. He not only can speak into my circumstances to guide, He can change circumstances. He can change hearts. He can provide resources. There's, our lives on this earth are more than simply the natural effects of cause and effect. God enters in and he guides and he shepherds and he provides. The second line, I shall not want. Sometimes this, this can make, us sound, make it sound like the kind of the prosperity gospel, like the Lord is my shepherd, I, riches, I shall not want, right? Rain down. That's not, it's, not necess- it's not the point. God will provide things, but the point here is that it's not that God is going to prosper us. The point is that, th- not the guarantee of prosperity, but the guarantee that you can be content. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord shepherds me. I will be content. This section is about contentment, restoration, the contentment of our recognition of the presence of God. The point here is not that guarantee of prosperity, but the guarantee that you are able to be content. Let's say it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Another way to say it would be, the Lord shepherds me. I will be content. Okay. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. A couple of ways you can say that. So, verse 2, that first line, he makes me lie down. He settles me into a place of fresh growth. Israel, those of you who go, you will notice that Israel does not have many green pastures. Like, it's not like the English countryside, you know, like these rolling hills of green. That's not the way it is. It's rocky. The idea is that 
the shepherd takes the sheep into a place where there is fresh growth that has come up. Usually through the rocks, it comes up. It might not be this lush image, but it's a place, it's a strategic place, a place of fresh growth. It says, he makes me lie down, or he settles me and he makes me lie down. Now that, that is an interesting thing. So Philip Keller, he wrote, anybody ever read Philip Keller, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23? It's a great book. It's a classic. It's a devotional classic. Philip Keller grew up in East Africa as a missionary, um, saw um, African shepherds do their work, and then when he moved back into, um, I, I can't remember whether he's in Australia or whether he's in, uh, he was in England, but he becomes a shepherd by trade and he raises sheep. And so he writes this book reflecting on how sheep behave and what the Psalm 23 is like. And he says this idea that he makes me lie down, that sheep do not naturally lay down. Sheep are very jittery. And they need four things in place if they're going to settle down. There's four things that sheep need. And um, he says uh, they need to be free from fear, friction, flies, and they need to know they have food. Now, he didn't put all those F's in there, but I thought that would work because those, you know, a good preacher does that kind of thing. Um, Free from fear, from friction, from flies, and from food. So the first thing is sheep, in order for them to lay down, otherwise they won't. They'll always stand on their feet because they're always afraid that something's going to get them because sheep are not particularly fast. And they have no real defense mechanism. And so sheep are just jittery. They're always running. Because sheep, it's always like, I just don't need to be this, I just don't want to be the slowest sheep. Right? I just don't want to be the slowest one. Because the slow one's going to get it. So sheep are always at kind of alert. They're always just jittery. That sheep are easily panicked. That even just a rabbit jumping out can, can scatter a flock. Just a dog, he tells a story about someone came to visit his farm and someone brought a little, a, little, a little bitty dog, a Pekingese dog, and this dog jumped out of the car and all the sheep went, Pew! you know, they all, it's just a little dog, like it's our dog Buddy, like our Buddy isn't going to hurt anybody. We're just having a good Buddy talk before service, but Buddy's not going to do anything, but the sheep think, whoa, like Buddy's here, like they'll run. Sheep are jittery. Just a threat of intruders will always make sheep stand up. They won't lie down if they have fear. Oftentimes, even sheep, and this is so sad, like if sheep, if sheep are attacked or sheep have to run or they're, they're jittery, that even if it's not a big threat, but pregnant sheep will oftentimes cast their, their, their lambs. They'll actually, they'll, 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 mis, they'll miscarry if, if it becomes too fearful. And so shepherds are always trying to keep the fear down because they could lose entire uh, flocks to be, they could lose all the lambs. They'll run around and harry themselves, but the familiar sight and sound of the shepherd will calm the sheep. So they got to be free from fear of predators. Um, they also, this is an interesting thing too, I didn't really think about this, but he, he writes that they need to be free, free of tensions and harassment within the flock. Now you're like, how are the sheep harassed within the flock? Well, here's the deal. Any group of animals, as they congregate together, they produce a pecking order. I mean, that's chickens, everybody. There's a pecking order. If you raise cattle, it's, it's, a, it's what they call a horning order, right? Because they've got horns, and, and they, they, who's on top, who's on bottom? With sheep, it's called a budding order. Not budding, it's budding, like head budding. And so sheep will oftentimes 
the kind of the, the older, more savvy, more wise, they know all the good places to eat. And so if some, if some younger lamb or some younger sheep gets in there, they're, they're like, hey, that's my spot, boom, and they'll butt them with their head. They'll boom, they'll, they'll butt them, they'll nudge them, they'll get them out of their spot. That within the herd, there's a butting order. And that sheep will establish this. And sheep need a sense of community. They need a freedom from rivalries. Now, here's the deal, just as we bring this home. Um, we are people. We're not sheep. But metaphorically, you get the idea. We're sheep. I've been in ministry for 25 years. I've been in church for 35 years. And I've seen firsthand in various areas where sheep in a congregation will establish the budding order. Whether you're new and you come and you're like, oh, I want to do this ministry. Well, we have someone who does that ministry. Boom. Right? Or like, hey, I want to volunteer and do this. Uh, I don't think we're, that's available right now. Look, you might laugh. You might think, oh, that's horrible. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. I'm not just talking about here. In the various churches that I've been a part of, there are various gatekeepers that if you step out of line, boom, and you'll feel it. And if it doesn't happen, it'll happen subtly, like they'll talk behind your back. Did you hear? Did you hear about so-and-so? Man, these new people, they really want to run this place. Like there's a budding order. And the interesting thing about sheep, sheep will not lie down if they are not free from the tensions within the herd. They'll be harried. They'll run around. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel, remember we went through the book of Ezekiel and we talked about in Ezekiel 34, this, this idea of um, that... Uh, that the, uh, Ezekiel takes the leaders of Israel to task because they are like, they're shepherds who feed themselves. They don't take care of the flock. They're shepherds that feed themselves. And, and Ezekiel says it from the Lord, I myself, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And he goes on to say in, in 34.20, Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. And he refers to these leaders as they're the fat sheep. And he says this about the fat sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust it all the week with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Man, one of the things, and it's, it's, it's a hard thing about church because there is a sense of like, yeah, I've been around for a long time and I love doing this and I love doing that. But there can be this sense of, of just protectiveness. That it might feel like, oh, this is, it's well-intentioned, but boom, the budding, the budding order of the flock. And what, the, what, the, what Keller says is, the sheep will not lie down to receive rest and care if the tensions within the flock are not taken care of. And the way the tensions of the flock are taken care of, and what Keller says is, when I walk into the pen, the sheep are at ease. They don't have to get in their order. They don't have to butt out. They know they're going to be taken care of. They know there will be food for everyone. They know they don't have to protect their turf. Within the pen, when the shepherd walks in, it eases the tension. There's a freedom from predators. They know they'll be protected. They know they'll be protected from the other sheep. They can begin to lie down. There's flies and pests that they need to be protected from. They also need to know that food and water are near and accessible. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. There's fresh growth. There is things that they can eat. There, there's plenty of food. There's plenty of water. It says he leads me beside still waters. Another way to say that, he escorts me to waters of rest. Water is near. Water is accessible. It's not a cause of concern. Still waters are clear water. And this is the thing in Israel, you might have seasonal streams or you might have streams. Not a lot. There's not a lot of water in Israel. You've got to find these. So what they would have is they have wells or better yet, they'd have cisterns where runoff water would go and it would collect. And the thing is the shepherd would have to get in there and have to bring it all up out of the cistern. And it would be hard work for the shepherd to get the water up. But once he would get it into this maybe pool, um, one of the things that you needed to do was you needed to keep the sheep out of the pool so that everybody could drink, so that the water would stay clear and not muddy. We go back to Ezekiel. One of the things that the Lord has against the leaders, thirty-four seventeen. as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, behold, I judge between the sheep and the sheep. Not enough for you to be fed on good pasture. You must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture. And to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet. And this idea, this, this image is that the shepherd provides clean, clear water. Whether it's out of a cistern or it's, it's accessible to them. And the other sheep have not trodden through it. I've had my fill, I can just walk right through this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He settles me into a place of fresh, fresh growth. He leads me beside waters of rest. Let's say it together. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then verse 3. He restores my soul. It's interesting, this word, restore, this is actually the same word in Hebrew that is used to be translated as the word repent. It says, he repents my soul. Now, we know, we've talked about this in here, and I will say it again, this will not be the last time, this will be the first time you've heard it, it won't be the last time you hear it, but repent means what? Means to turn, means to turn, right? That faith is essentially this fundamental orientation in the direction of God. That's what faith is. Faith is facing God. It's our fundamental orientation. That sometimes, and I'm just saying this might be true for me, sometimes I get distracted in this world. And my focus is not on God, but on something else. The idea, the Hebrew idea, is that what you do, the call is to turn. The call is to repent. Repent, it's turn. Repent sounds so old-timey, right? But really what it is, is it's just let's turn towards God. Sometimes we have to turn 180 because we're walking fully away from God and the turn is like this. Sometimes we're just a little bit off like this. Sometimes we're just a fraction off and the, the call daily is to turn and face God. And what this passage says is that not only is the Lord my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. But he turns my soul. He turns me. He restores my soul. Keller talks about the phenomena 
in his experience of what is called um, cast sheep. I didn't know, I didn't know this before, but sheep, when they, um, when they fall over, they have this kind of weird center of gravity. They're kind of roly-poly. And so if a sheep kind of gets on its side and gets a little bit off, it'll just roll with its feet in the air. Okay, now it's kind of a funny image, right? That you have these sheep that you could just tip sheep and they just go, oh, you know, like they just have their sheep. It's what's called a cast sheep. It's called a cast sheep. We actually get... Um, uh, we get the word um, in, in, in English, this is where we get our word um, when in the Psalms where it says, um, why, my, why, O soul, are you cast down? The image is that you, your soul has been put on its back and it's like, ah, legs in the air. This idea of cast sheep, when a sheep falls over, sheep can easily get to the point where they can't get up. And sheep will be on their backs with their feet in the air, and they'll flay about trying to right themselves. And, but what the sheep is, is, it's frightened, it's frustrated, it's totally, like if there's predators around, it's an easy kill. If a sheep gets cast, sheep are in trouble. And when a sheep is cast, the shepherd has to come and tip it back over and stand it back up. Have to put the sheep upright. And the problem with cast sheep is that it's not just like they're dumb. Sometimes it's... It's because they're too fat. They're so well-fed and they have so much wool, they're so healthy that they can find themselves in this position like a, a healthy sheep going, I can't, you know, I'm like, they can't move. They're too well-fed. They lay down, they stretch out, their center of gravity turns and boom, they're on their back. And it's kind of humorous. I mean, we think about it as humorous, Right? But sheep, sheep that are cast are actually in real trouble. Because what happens is, again, I didn't know this before, but gases will, if a sheep is turned upside down, gases build up in their abdomen, and it begins to expand, and then it cuts off blood to their extremities. In a, on a hot day, sheep can be dead in hours. If it's cold and rainy, they can last longer, sometimes days cast. But this is one of the reasons why the image of the shepherd is one of constant vigilance. It's not simply about watching out for predators. It's watching out for sheep that it had inadvertently cast. And so what, what uh, Keller writes, this is what Keller writes about this. He actually says this is, it, it's, it's one of the most profound things that he did as a shepherd. He says, during my own years as a keeper of sheep, perhaps some of the most poignant memories are wrapped up around the commingled anxiety of keeping account of my flock and repeatedly saving and restoring cast sheep. It's not easy to convey on paper the sense of this ever-present danger. This is what he says. He says, often I would go out early and merely cast my eye across the sky. If I saw buzzards circling overhead, anxiety would grip me. Leaving everything else, I would immediately go out in the pasture and count the flock to make sure everyone was well and fit on their feet. If there wasn't, if the count was off, if the count was off, I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. And then more often than not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. I would hurry as fast as I could with a mingled sense of joy and fear, joy that I had found it, but afraid that it was too late. As soon as I reached the cast U, my very first impulse would be to pick it up, roll it on its side, 
If it had been down for long, I would have to lift her onto her feet, restore the circulation in her legs. Often it took some time. All the time I worked on the cash sheep, I would talk to it. You fell down. I'm so glad I found you. Do you think you could stay on your feet for a little while longer? You had me worried. We'll get you up again. Little by little, it would regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily, assuredly, and then it would dash to rejoin the other. And he says this, all of this pageantry is conveyed to my heart and mind when I repeat simply the statement, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. He turns my soul. I suppose the question is, have you ever felt cast? Just on your back, legs in the air, just not even knowing what, which way is up? This is kind of the definition of disorientation, right? Where maybe a circumstance comes into your life and you don't know what to do with it. Maybe you do something and it just rocks you. You don't, you don't know what to do with your own sin. Or maybe even worse, that someone else wrongs you and you don't know what to do with it. I think this image, this image here of a cast sheep is how we experience the season of disorientation. And I know, I know in this room, I know there are people out here who could give a story, who could provide testimony. I was cast, the Lord found me, set me up, and got me going again. The psalmist says that he restores my cast soul. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're even here today and you're like, yeah, I'm kind of in one of those, like I feel like that's been my life lately. I'm on my back and I'm flailing around. I'm bleeding. I'm wondering, bleating, not bleeding, but maybe it is the same way. But the idea is that I, I don't know where to go. I don't know. Here's the psalm of confidence. The psalm of confidence is, you are with me that the shepherd, the good shepherd, will go out and find his sheep. It is not a coincidence that Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd. You might say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. I will find my sheep. Maybe God repenting our souls, recasting us, taking us and turning us up, turning us toward Him. It can be a, a, a slow process. It can be a, a really drastic jerk where the adrenaline kind of sobers you up. But the image here is that God is with you and God is riding cast sheep. He's restoring your cast soul. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life 
They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We'll continue to explore this image of the shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd. Let's hear it. We're we're going to say, we're going to recite the psalm together a couple different ways. The the traditional way and then a, a paraphrase. So let's say this together. The Lord is my shepherd. Now say this. Jesus is my shepherd. How about say it this way? Jesus shepherds me. Let's say this. I shall not want. And the paraphrase is this. Let's say this. I will be content. So Jesus is my shepherd. I will be content. Now let's say this together. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, let's say the paraphrase. He lays me down in a place of fresh growth. Just think about that. He gives me the confidence to lay down in a place of fresh growth. Free from fear. Predators, free from fear of rivalries. Free from pests with the knowledge that there is food. Let's say this together. He leads me beside still waters. In the paraphrase, he escorts me to waters of rest. And let's say this. He restores my soul. Or say it this way. He sets upright my cast soul. Let's just pray. Let's pray and let's just, those images, maybe one of them sticks with you. Maybe one is preeminent. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, but maybe one of these images is just preeminent. Just, just focus on it for a second. And that it's just a part of the psalm that maybe the Holy Spirit is just impressing upon to you this morning. And maybe in this moment, we don't simply want to repeat theological truth. We want to mean prayer. And we would not say, God is with me, though that's true. We would say, in this moment, you are with me. Would you speak that to Jesus just in your heart right now? You are with me. And Father, we recognize that sometimes it's hard to feel that. We recognize that we don't always feel your nearness, but we ask that you would give us a rich sense of your presence that would give us the confidence to speak, you are with me. That we might go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To hear your voice, I am with you. To then say, you are with me.
we recognize, Father, that that can be a journey, but we also want to experience this psalm of confidence. And we want to learn how to be confident that you indeed are with us. Father, we are so, so grateful for this amazing piece of literature. We ask that you would sink it deep into our hearts and that our relationship with you, Jesus, would be richer for our time in this psalm. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.